Well, it's great to be back. As you can tell, there's a new apparatus to the, uh, the wardrobe. Uh, and so a lot of people have asked, well, what happened? And uh, so I'll tell you what happened. Uh, you know, some of our team, we were in northwestern Uganda. A team of us spent two weeks up in an area called Gulu. And the church in Gulu sends their greetings to you. And uh, thank you. Yes, that was one of our team. And I love you for that. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure who did that, but God bless you. Uh, Reagan. I, all right. Um, so, and I hope that all of us get a chance to uh, experience the church in northern uh, Uganda. Uh, that church planning movement that we are partnering with, and you're going to hear a lot about it over the next year. And uh, trust me, there will be challenges over the next years to come where we'll be challenging you to pack your bags and go where it's completely safe. All right? So we had, uh, we had fought uh, the, uh, the world of darkness, and uh, we were taking a break, and uh, we were in a game park, and we were in the middle of nowhere, and if you've ever been in the middle of nowhere, okay, imagine starting there and then going still another quarter way around the world, and that's where we were. And uh, this rhino came out of the bushes from nowhere. No, I'm kidding. That would have been a cool story, but I was on top of the van and fell off, and uh, nothing glamorous. I was right over the tire well. But I'll tell you this, and for those of you that want to hear more of this story, I'm not sure it'll work its way into a sermon anytime soon because does God ever give you something and it, it's so precious and it's so close to you that uh, you just can't speak it out loud? And uh, all I can tell you is God knocked me off that van. And this is the greatest gift that he could have given me in this last year. And he is in pursuit of me in a way that that leaves me, I, I, that's all I can say. And uh, this, to me, is his beautiful gift. So if you want to hear more about that, um, buy me a cup of coffee. I'll be happy to tell you about it. But we're in Colossians. So let's go to Colossians chapter 4. And uh, this is our last sermon on our series in Colossians. It's a beautiful journey that we've been through in this book, and I won't review all of it because uh, there's a lot that I feel the Lord has for us tonight. So I want to dive into it. This is chapter 4, and it's verse 7. If you're in a house Bible, what's that page number? 818. Tychicus, this is Paul. Now, let me remind you that Paul is in prison, and uh, the man that planted this church in Colossae uh, was converted through one of Paul's missionary journeys to Ephesus. Paul's never been to this city. But this guy actually got converted and began to get discipled. And then he went home and he planted a church in his community. And this church started to experience some controversy and some real challenges to it. So he traveled for six months to Rome to find Paul. Because he knew Paul had the authority as an apostle to speak into the struggle that they were experiencing. So this guy, uh, Paul's never been there, so just take into account that what Paul is doing now is he's written this book, and now he is sitting in his cell, and there's a whole community of men sitting around him. 
And I want you to imagine as you hear these words that Paul is kind of giving a, uh, a picture. It's a snapshot of Paul in prison and the people that are with him. Okay, ready? Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Astarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proven a comfort for me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. And Demas, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and at the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the churches of the Laodiceans, that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So why would Paul, why would he do that? Why would, at the end of this letter, I mean, this is the Bible, you know? If you were asked to write the Bible, would you spend this many verses just giving greetings from the people that are sitting around you? Well, let me ask you this. If you were writing the Bible, and you were sitting, sending greetings to, let's say, the church in Gulu that you've never been to, and you were speaking into a struggle that they were having, and you were speaking the gospel into their lives, and you, at the very end of your letter, you send them greetings of the circle that are sitting around you. Who would you send them greetings from? Who's in your circle? Who are the people that are sitting around you that you would say, oh, and Earl says hello, <laughs> or Kathy, or, you know, Tom, or who, who is it that's in your circle that was in Paul's circle? And it's really a funny thing. I don't know about you, but some of you maybe can relate to this. As I think about my friendships, and I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how I became friends with some of the people that I'm friends with. And, you know, I really can't remember how I became friends with some of the people that I'm friends with. Do any of y'all have that same experience? Like, you're friends and you hang out with these people, and how did that all start? You're not really sure. Like, it just, you have to go back and really unravel the history of how you guys got to where you hang all the time together. But let me ask you this, you know, it's interesting how we gravitate toward people and how people gravitate toward us. How we open the door to let people into the inner circle. Because Paul was saying hello and greetings from the people that were in the inner circle. I mean, it wasn't any closer than this. Paul was getting ready for execution, and these were the people that were with him. And it's funny how we open up that door. 
Because, you know, our natural selves, that part of us that's unredeemed, that part that, that is fallen, that needs to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it has a natural tendency. And its natural tendency is to gravitate toward people that give them a sense of self-protection. You know, when you're in high school, it's called a clique. You know, we have this group of people that I know when I, when I get my lunch from the cafeteria lady, I know there's a table somewhere that I can go sit where people are going to make room for me at that table. I fit there. And my friendships are giving me a safe place where at least I may not like all of them and I may not enjoy being with them all, but at least it's my place and I fit here. And it's easy sometimes for us to create friendships and create an inner circle of people that are just safe people. That I'm with them because they make me feel like I've got a place to fit in. My old natural self also tends to move toward not just self-protection. That's a knee-jerk reaction. But another knee-jerk reaction of my old fallen part is self-glorification of where I want to glorify me. I want to make me look better than I am. I want people to think that there are things that are true about me that aren't really true about me. Or I want people to think better of me than maybe what I'm really capable of doing. And so it's easy for me to find friends that I surround around me that make me feel good. I want friends that make me feel better about myself than maybe I really am. Or self-gratification. The old flesh tends toward self-protection, self-glorification, but also self-gratification. Is that I just want a group of friends that I can have fun with. I want a group of friends that are just going to make my life just so much fun. Well, let me say, stop just for a minute, okay? And just say that there's nothing wrong with having friends that make you feel safe. And there's nothing wrong with having friends that make you feel better about yourself at the end of a day. And there's nothing wrong with having friends that you can laugh your tail off with, all right? You know, and laugh until you puke. That's awesome, you know? If you've never had that experience, okay. But see, the problem is, is when that becomes the motivation, when that becomes the door handle that opens up the door to my inner circle, guess what begins to happen? Is there are no group of friends that are safe enough. And you know what? There's no group of friends that are going to make me feel good enough. And there's no group of friends that are going to make me have enough fun. We know that. See, what we talk about here all the time is that when Christ went to the cross, and when Christ died and then he rose again, he wasn't purchasing a, for us a theology. He wasn't purchasing... Wow! He wasn't purchasing for us a, a philosophy that we can live by. He wasn't trying to give you a book of answers so that when people ask you tough questions about what you believe, you can say, well, I believe boom, 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 boom. That's not what Jesus was doing. When Jesus died on the cross, he was birthing in a new kingdom. He was bringing a new kingdom to bear into this world. And in that new kingdom, the only members of this new kingdom are those that are going to be born out of death and birthed into life. Those who were once in the kingdom of darkness and now have been brought into the kingdom of light. And we've been changed forever. What once is no more. It's gone. The old is gone. The new has come. Now we are new creations in Christ. And as new creations in Christ, we're part of a new kingdom. 
and we're a part of a new kingdom, we've been also reborn into a new family. And when I've been born into a new family, then I have a new name. And when I've been born into a, king, a new family with a new name, I also have a new purpose. I actually have a new purpose for my life. I actually have a mission to my life. Back in uh, June of this summer, I don't know if any of you saw this on the news, but the FBI busted the uh, largest Russian spy ring in the history of U.S.-Russian relations. Did any of y'all hear about this? They arrested 11 people that uh, were here in the United States and had been here for years living as ordinary American citizens, but the whole time they were spies. And what was remarkable about this story is none of them were like your James Bond, you know, you know, shaken, not stirred. These were people that got married, they were having kids, they were members of the PTA, they grew gardens, they participated in Neighborhood Watch. I mean, they drove cars, they had mortgages. They were just typical American people, but they weren't. They were Russians that were planted here, you know, 20 years ago to be spies. Matter of fact, uh, this is, uh, I read this in the paper the other day. It says, the group allegedly attended one of Moscow's most elite spy schools before landing in America. And their mission was spelled out, but somewhat awkwardly, in a 2009 message from the Moscow Center. It says, you were sent to the U.S. for a long-term service trip. I wish I could have a Russian accent with that. Your education Bank accounts, cars, houses, etc., all these serve one goal, for, to fulfill your main mission. Sorry, I'm slow here. Here was their main mission. This is it. This was the bedrock of everything they did for 20 years while they were in the U.S. This was it. Now, listen, I want you, when I read it, I want you to hear, this was the reason they bought a house. This was the reason they had a car. This is the reason they got married. This is the reason they participated in their neighborhood. This is the reason they got jobs. This is the reason that they worked in their jobs. Search and develop ties and policy-making circles in U.S. and send intelligence to Moscow Center. They were lousy at it. They found no secrets that they had dug up and sent to the Moscow Center. But I thought, you know, when I heard about this, is that like us? You know, we are members of another kingdom. And as members of another kingdom, everything we do has a different purpose to it. Everything that we're involved in has an underlying mission that we are members of a new kingdom now. We've been birthed into a new family now with a new name and a new purpose for the kingdom of God. See, what didn't unite these people was their heritage. It wasn't their accent. It wasn't even the country they were from. These 11 people were united by one thing. They had a common mission. And that common mission is what connected all of them. And that's much like Paul and this really unusual fellowship of people that he tells us about at the very end of this book. See, these were men that knew their citizenship was in another kingdom. They realized that everything served their mission for that kingdom. This was a fellowship that was formed by a mission. It was a community of half-Jews and half-Gentiles, all with the same goal. Hear this word. 
People on mission attract people on mission. So let me ask you, who surrounds you? Are you surrounded by people of mission? Now, let me explain what that may look like. Are you surrounded by people that understand that you're a person that's a part of a new kingdom? Are you surrounded by people that understand that as a member of this new kingdom, you also have a new paradigm and a new purpose for your life and even a mission for why you're here and you do what you do? Do, are you surrounded by people that understand that and support that? Are you surrounded by people that are cheering you on for the mission that God has you on? People that are praying for you. Are you surrounded by people that challenge you and are serving you and teaching you and holding you accountable and at times even carrying you? When you think about the people that would be in your circle if you were writing the letter of Paul, would you be able to say, those people get it. They understand the mission that I'm on. They understand what my life is about, and they are cheering me on as I work out that which God placed inside of me. Hmm. Are you in a powerful fellowship, or are you in a poison fellowship? Think about that just for a minute. Is your fellowship putting fire underneath the vision and the mission that God has given you, or is it taking you away from it? Now, before you're too harsh on your friends, because they may all be sitting around you right now going, hmm, am I poison or am I powerful for them? I don't know. Let's take a look at the fellowship that Paul was in. And let's uh, unpack who were these people that he listed here at the end of uh, Colossians. Well, Tychicus is the first guy that he mentions. And what do we know about this guy? He's only mentioned about five times in the Bible. But let me tell you, and only very briefly, but let me tell you what we do know about Tychicus. He was the golden retriever of friends. I mean, this guy was faithful. This is a guy that every time he's mentioned in the Bible, he is mentioned as a man that is carrying a task for Paul. He's that friend, and maybe you, you've got a friend like this, or maybe you're a friend like this, that no task is too small and no task is too big, that they're just ready to serve. That whatever it is, hey, you need your car washed? I'm, I'm there. You need your feet rubbed? I'm there. Hey, you need me to pick you up some coffee on the way over to pick you up? No problem. What's going on? They're the kind of friend that when you call them in the middle of the night, they don't answer the phone and go, what do you want? They're the friend that when you call them in the middle of the night, they're like, hey, what's up? I saw your number. What's going on? They're the friend that's ready to serve and ready to give of themselves. Tychicus was that kind of guy. You know, we find everywhere in the Bible where we see his name mentioned, Paul is sending him to either, he's sending him to Ephesus, he's sending him to Colossae, he's sending him to uh, Titus, and he sent him to Timothy. He actually even is sending him on a journey at the end of this book that we're going to talk about in just a second, but he's sending him into probably one of the most difficult relational issues that was going on at this time. And because Paul was in prison, he can't go himself. And so he needs a man that not only is faithful to the task that he's been given, but also has the courage to step in to very awkward situations. You know, the kind of guy that goes, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just here. You know that kind of guy? When, uh, when we were in Uganda and uh, I'd broken my collarbone and we didn't know really what was going on, and uh, so 
I had around me a whole slew of Tychicus, a whole team of people that were willing to put down everything they were doing to get me to a place where they could find out that I was okay. And so when I finally got to the hospital in Kampala, we walk in, and it's kind of a scary place, uh, as you can imagine a hospital in Africa would be. Um, you know, there wasn't necessarily lights in the hallway, and um, not everything was clean, but they took me back for the x-ray, and they had a guy back there with a sketch pad, and he... No, I'm kidding. Uh, so... <laughs> So they, the guy says, hey, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to take your shirt off. And I had not moved my arm for six hours. Uh, so we're peeling it off, and um, he goes, okay, fine, you can, come, you can put your shirt back on. And there was just no way that shirt was going back on. So I call my good faithful friend, Rusty, and here I am standing in the hospital half nude, and Rusty comes into the room to help me put my shirt on even though I was cussing and wanted to punch him and the pain that he was creating in my life to get me clothed again. But that's a Tychicus. Hey, he's in pain. He's all bruised up. Uh, what do I do? What do I touch? But he didn't walk away. He stepped in and stayed in the moment to serve. That's a good friend to have, isn't it? Do you have one of those in your circle? The person that will take a bullet for you? The person who says, I will choose to believe the best in you, even when everybody else is saying that's not true. And when it's proven that the best is not you, I'll be the first in line to call you out on it. But I'm not going anywhere. Tychicus. Then the next one is Onesimus. Now maybe you have one of these people in your life. I love this guy. Because here, this is the guy with a past. He's the guy that has the scars. He's the guy that has the stories that he can't tell when the children are around. Because Onesimus is a runaway slave. He actually uh, stole a bunch of stuff, and then he fled. He came to Rome to try to escape his master. He'd made a real mess of his life, and he was on the run. And while he was in Rome, he uh, happened to hear someone sharing the gospel. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? And he heard the gospel, and he converted. He gave his life to Christ. He said, man, that's me. And he gave his whole life to Christ, and he came to Paul, and he said, man, I am, I am a broken man, and I am a new man. And, but there, if you, there's a book in the Bible called Philemon. And Philemon, that book is, Philemon was Onesimus' master. He owned Onesimus. And the book of Philemon was the book that Paul wrote and stuck in Tychicus' pocket and said, now take this book, uh, this letter, and take Onesimus and go back to Philemon and tell Philemon, hold off on punishing him because he's a brother now. And fought to restore that relationship. Onesimus was the guy that said, whatever it takes to make things right, I'll do it. That, imagine having somebody in your circle who has the scars from messing up their life big time, but now also had the resolve because of what Christ had done in their lives, now I'm going to walk toward restoration and healing. Wow, that takes a lot of guts. That's the kind of friend that looks at you and says, we can disagree all day long, but walking out the door is not the option. No, we're going to work through this. Even if we have to bring other people into the room, we're going to work through this because this is too important. 
That's the friend that pushes you relationally to go where maybe you're afraid to go to or pushes you into that relationship that you say, I'm not sure that I can have relationships with people like you. Astarchus. This guy, and I don't know if you have somebody like this in your life, I hope you do, because this guy, he's the guy that maybe doesn't say a lot, uh, but when you catch their eye, you like, you remember, don't you? Because he was the guy that wherever Paul went, he went. And when we hear about him in the Bible, this is the guy that was with Paul when the riots in Ephesus broke out, and they got beaten and they thought they were going to die. This is the guy that did the travel by sea and was in the shipwreck with Paul. This is the guy that just wherever Paul went, this guy went. And you can just imagine them sitting around the fire at night and going, man, you know that jailer when he walked in, did he not remind you of those guys in the riot in Ephesus when they wanted to kill us? And they're just laughing, yeah, can you believe we lived through that? This is a guy that just journeys with you. And as he journeys with you, he also tells the stories and reminds you of the stories of God's faithfulness and where you've been to. This is the friend who says, you know what? If, if I've got a night free and I just need to hang, this is who I want with me. Well, they're probably going to be there anyway because there's, not, you, there's no way to get rid of them. This is the Sam, uh, Sam Wise Gamgee. You remember the scene in the, uh, in the last of the Lord of the Rings where Frodo is uh, at the end of his road and he cannot carry the burden any longer. And Sam Wise looks at him and says, I know you won't give me that ring. I can't carry your burden, but I can carry you. And he begins to carry his friends up the, what's the mountain? Somebody knows it. Yes the big flamey thing, all right? But that's the friend who says, I know maybe you're beat down, but I will carry you when no one else can carry you. Beautiful gospel expression and faithful friendship. There's Mark. Are you seeing how this, uh, this circle of friends may not be as clean cut as you may have thought? Well, there's Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas. And what we find out about Barnabas is that Barnabas and Paul were Titus thieves, and Barnabas funded most of Paul's missionary journeys. But on their second missionary journey, they had a split. And they said, we just can't travel together anymore. They had a fight that they could not resolve, and so Paul went one way with Silas, and Barnabas went another way with Mark. Because Mark, on the very first missionary journey, they had gotten into some trouble, and Mark said, I'm out, I'm through, forget it, I'm not doing this Jesus thing anymore. He packed up his bags and left. Well, he had a change of heart. So when they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas said to Paul, Mark can handle it. And Paul said, no, I'm not taking the guy. I'm sorry, he is not coming with us anymore. Barnabas so believed in Mark that he put his foot down and said, if he doesn't go, I don't go. Now, what I'm saying to you is, have you ever seen two people that are so close that they're such tight friends that you hardly ever see them inseparable? That was Paul and Barnabas. Now imagine you being the reason that they're not together anymore. Would that be awkward? Here he sat, right in the circle. What happened? Some things come full circle. 
through the help of Peter and through the help of Barnabas, they restored Mark. And through that restoration, they also restored his integrity to where Paul brought him into the fellowship. And he became valuable to Paul. Matter of fact, he ended up writing a book of the Bible. He was called John, I think. No, Mark. Justice, also named Jesus. We, we don't know anything about him, but wow, try living up to that name. Uh, I'm sure he had an inferiority comeback. <laughs> and then there was Epaphras. Let me tell you about Epaphras. Epaphras is the man who started the church in Colossae. This guy has a heart that is so big that it irritates the out of everybody else. Have you ever known anybody that their heart is so big that it just keeps slowing everything down? They can't pass a homeless person without stopping and sitting down and talking to them for 30 minutes. You know, they can't pass children that need something and not play with them for a while. Their heart's just so big, and this is Epaphras. He loved so big. And his love was so big for this church that when it was in trouble, he traveled six months to go find Paul and got sick and almost died. And that's why Paul says here at the end, even on his deathbed, even though he didn't die, what he thought was his deathbed, he continued to pray for the church at Colossae because he loved them so much. This huge heart. A number of years ago, uh, I was with a group of teenagers and we were in this orphanage uh, in a third world country. And it was our last day. And uh, we're all in the van and we're getting ready to go except for Tom. Tom was not in the van. And Tom was one of those Epaphrases, man. He just had a big heart. Like we would leave places and he, we, we would realize an hour later he's not in the car with us. Because he just got lost with the people that he was with. Just loving them and or playing kickball with the kids or so I look out there, and Tom has his suitcase open, and he's just throwing his clothes everywhere. And he, finally, we get him in the van, and all he has on is a T-shirt and a pair of shorts. And I said, where's your suitcase? He said, it's gone. I gave it away, man. I said, where are your clothes? Gave it all away. Where's your money? I don't have any money. Where's your Bible? Gave it away. Gave everything away. I've got nothing. All I've got is my shirt and my T-shirt. You think they'll let me on the plane with no shoes on? And that was Tom. Like, he realized this is my last moment here with these children, and I'm going home to my father who has a house full of clothes. And he said, I, and he wanted to give away our stuff. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Do you have a friend like that who challenges your love for things that you shouldn't love so much? Well, Tom dedicated his life to, uh, to orphans in India. And as a grown man now, he's back in the States fighting for his life. He has cancer. But his whole life has been marked by this radical life that everybody said to him, you can't do that. And Epaphras said, okay, whatever. And then he went and did it. That's Epaphras. Demas, we got to talk about him just for a second and then I'm going to close, all right? Because if you choose to have a fellowship a missional fellowship, if you choose to step out on the journey of saying, I am marked by Christ, I am His, and He is calling me on a mission, and you choose then at that moment to live as a missional person, person and begin to look for and draw around you those that are also missional, when you start to gather an unusual fellowship, 
an unusual fellowship of people that dares to believe the gospel is true and dares to believe that in the truth of this gospel, it's not only going to change us, but God wants to use us to change the world that we live in. If you dare to believe that and live in that fellowship, a Demas is going to come. And what do I mean by that? Well, we find later in the Bible that Demas and this fellowship uh, betrayed Paul. He said, for the love of the world, Demas left him high and dry right before he was executed. And I can promise you, your heart is going to be broken. Because if you dare to love a fellowship, an unusual fellowship of those who say, I believe in your mission, and I'll journey with you as a missional person, there will be one in the fellowship that will break your heart. Jesus himself had one. And trust me, if you think that this unusual fellowship is a protective band of brothers that are going to keep you from ever getting hurt, that's just not true. Nothing can protect you from that. God didn't protect Paul. But it was a ragtag group of misfit warriors, bruised and battered and hardened by the battle. They were half Greek, they were half Jewish. He had a trustworthy friend, a radical convert, a brother that is a storyteller, another one with an oversized heart, one that had been redeemed into a new friendship, and then there was Luke. I skipped over him. Didn't mean to do that. He was a historian. He was a doctor. He was Paul's intellectual equal. I'm imagining that Paul and Luke had conversations that nobody else understood what they were talking about. With all that said, let me ask you this. Who's in your fellowship? Who are you intentionally building life with? Who are you intentionally opening up the door and looking at them and saying, I want you here at the table? I was with an older pastor this week, and uh, he has traveled the journey before me, and he's a storyteller. And uh, so we've been talking for about 30 or 40 minutes, and I just looked at him and I just said, look, brother, this is great. I love hanging out with you and shooting the breeze and telling you about Midtown and hearing about your church and stuff. But let me stop. I, there is an empty chair at my table. And I, I am asking you right now, will you pray about sitting in that chair? Will you join the unusual fellowship in my life that will help me understand and walk and live in the journey of this mission and even give my life to it? And he goes, wow. I said, yeah, I'm asking you to come into the door of my life and sit down and have an interest here. Will your name become a part of this story? Well, he said no, and we got in a big fight. It was ugly. <clears throat> but he was older, so I took him. He went one arm. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> no. He said he's going to pray about it. <laughs> you know what that means. loser. Uh, no. I'm afraid you'll come back around. But the point of that is, are, who are you intentionally asking? Who is God intentionally put in your life? When we were in northern uh, Uganda, we got to uh, meet the pastors of Gulu that are all working together as brothers in this fellowship. There's Jeffrey. Jeffrey's the head of the movement. And we joked because he always dressed so cool and 
He had, you know, these earpieces for his phone, and I'm convinced he runs the mafia in Gulu. You know, he just, he's just too smooth. It's just way too smooth, very smart. Then there was Gabriel, who's an ex-truck driver, who uh, is the oldest of the bunch, and is just bigger than life. I mean, he really is. He's like six foot four, and just, just glows, and just wants to hug, and yes, and everything's glory, praise the Lord, you know, and just bigger than life. And then there's Jefferson, who has a story of polygamy in his past, and who is very poor, and yet wants to serve the Lord. And and then there's Daniel, who doesn't know how to cook uh, meat very well because uh, he fed our team, and I think they chewed on his uh, goat leg for hours. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? That not mean a thing to you. I mean, it's kind of comical. You can imagine what these guys look like. But you know what? Uh, to those men, they are a fellowship. They are an unusual fellowship. And that unusual fellowship is they feel God's mandate to be the church planters in northern Uganda. And they they feel God's mandate to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to their country. What is your mandate? What is your fellowship? Do you just have a bunch of friends that are fun to be with? Or are you like Paul? In an unusual fellowship that have been called by God into his family for his purpose... And now you're looking around going, God, where are the brothers that you've called me to lock arms with? The sisters that you've called me to befriend? Those that are sitting around my table that we will fight with each other for one another and for the cause that you've pushed us on? Well, trust me, as you begin to open your eyes to that, that group may be a very unusual group. (laughs) It may turn out that they're weirder than you can ever possibly imagine. And stranger, and some may even break your heart. But I think Paul gives us a good picture here of when we go on mission, God gathers missions around us. So, mid-tem. Let's pray. Lord, there is, uh, more than likely in this room, there are people in this room, Father, that are in poisonous relationships. Maybe relationships that are so filled with grumbling and complaining. So full of dream smashing. Relationships that are drawing your people away from the very sense of living in mission. And God, there may be people in this room tonight that realize that there are some relationships in their lives that they need to shut the door on. That they're not... uh, putting a fire under them into the mission you've called them on, but they're throwing water on that fire. Lord, I pray for them. They need your courage to do what you're calling them to do. There's some in this room tonight, Father, that are so lonely because it doesn't feel like anybody's sitting around the table. There's some in this room, Father, that aren't sure that they have any friends that meet any of the qualifications of any of the men that we just talked about. And I thank you for where they're at, Father. And I know that may be hard, but as one who carries a wound, I, I know that wound. And I pray, Father, you give them eyes to see the people sitting around them right now. This community, this band of brothers, draw them in, Lord, and give them courage as they seek to make seats around this table. And Lord, there are those in this room right now that 
boy, they, they've got that fellowship. They understand that mission. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength as their unusual fellowship gives them courage to live out the mission that you've given them. And let us all worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.